Good morning, happy Sabbath. Thank you, Brother Ruben, for the music. Uh, music soothes the soul. Um, David played a harp when his king master was troubled and he was pacified. We're not troubled, but we need the music to keep us on a higher plane. 
and of course to receive the Word of God with all readiness of mind and the gentleness of the Spirit. Thank you once more, Brother Ruben Capistrano. May God bless you. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you again for extending another week. For us to get to this point in our journey with you, in our, our studies, may it be progressive. May it be enlightening. May it uh, be actually food for the soul to fortify our minds and our hearts uh, for the last days. May we store our minds today with the great truths of the Bible that we may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil when it comes and gain the perfect victory over Satan, the flesh, the world, and all that deceives and tempts. May Jesus be with us today through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we pick up now from where we left off. We were talking about Jacob the last time. And Jacob is a type of Christ as well. But our main topic now is actually the willing consent of the governed. And we talked about God and our consent previous to this. Now we're talking about Christ in God and our consent. And we need to turn to the book of Revelation because this book of Revelation is not a revelation of John. It's usually called John the Revelator. It isn't John the Revelator. It was John who received the revelations from Christ. And I want to make sure that I'm using the words of the Bible by introducing this. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 1. And right off, the preamble defines the whole book in itself. Revelation chapter 1, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, that is Christ, to show to his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. And he, God, sent and signified it, signified it by his angel to the servant John, who bore record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that quitteth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. I'm always reminded where John, in preparing for the way of Christ, says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. His one is, Behold, Christ is at hand. At the end uh, that he saw, it is the end that is coming. And so, blessed is he that reads, and they that hear the words. And in verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And in the last statements, closing statements of the book of Revelation, which summarizes all the books, the 65 books, leading into this final book of books, he, I love what it says here, it is an invitation. It is all with a willing consent of the governed. And as Jesus is the revelator, he coursed it to his angel to John, and John to the churches. And look how this thing is given to us now in its final form, this invitation. 
this willing acceptance. It was an invitation in the beginning. It will be an invitation in the end. John chapter, Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 and 17 says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. This is a church message. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And here it is, the invitation. Will you willingly consent to receive this invitation and be governed by the power of God and the love of God? Verse 17 says, And the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, and the bride, that's the church, say, Come. Come. And let him that heareth also say, come. So it's an invitation from the beginning and to all the layers of those to whom this message will be given. It's come, come and come. Let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is athirst, come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now we understand the water of life is the source of life, and the source of life is the life giver himself. In him, life resides, original, unborrowed, underived. You want to receive that? I want to. But we must understand that before we get there, there is a cooperative work that must be done, and our will should be on the side of God's will. And the will of God is expressed in his law. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written in my heart. So if you're going to say, well, what is God's will? <laughs> Don't fish around. That's very dangerous. Don't surf the net. It's even more risky. You go to the word of God. It says very plainly, I delight to do thy will, O God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. The will comes from the heart. The consent comes from the mind and the heart as dictated by the conscience, which is the freedom that we have today. So in Christ and our consent, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? Because from this book, Desire of Ages, page 668, I found a wonderful passage here that shows us that God or Christ because we spoke about God the Father. Now it's Christ. Christ will blend man's heart and mind to his will by his consent. Same thing. Christ will identify himself with man's thoughts and aims by his consent. I love that even more. Even more. He will identify himself with our thoughts and our aims only by our consent. And so the question we ask is, what does it mean to pray? And I find this answer uh, so compelling. The angel of the Lord told Joseph, what did he tell Joseph? And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name what? Jesus. And what does Jesus mean? For he shall save his people. Then say, save the world. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But here it says he shall save his people, not the world, from their sins, not in their sins. 
That is the meaning of the name of Jesus. So let's be very careful with the way we use the name Jesus and how often we use that name. Because in this passage I'm reading from the Sarf Ages, page 668, to pray in Christ's name means much. It means that we are to accept his character, manifest his spirit, and work his works. Yes, it's not just a vain repetition or a careless repetition of in the name of Jesus. No wonder many of us are guilty of taking his name in vain until we understand fully what that name means and what it stands for. The character, the glory, the authority, the power. To pray in Christ's name means much. It means that we are to accept his character manifest his spirit and work his works you know too many of us christians have been taking the name of our savior in vain we misuse his name which means authority by the way the name means authority the savior's promise is given on condition it's conditional he says if you love me that's an if it's a condition then you keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Uh, and he saves men not in, but from their sins. And so if we love him, we will show that love by what? By obedience. There's nothing more that can be added or taken away from that. It's so simple. Even a child can understand that. So all true obedience actually comes from the heart. It's not compulsion. It's not by force. It's not by threat. It's not by persecution. It comes from the heart. Because it was hard work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and our aims. He will so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will so that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. We need to review that, friends. There is a time when the impulses and decisions and the righteousness of man is actually the righteousness of God. Not until, okay, this is very careful. We are working on a minefield here. Because people will accuse you of saying, well, you shouldn't have your righteousness. It should be the righteousness of Christ. But the righteousness of Christ is illustrated by the robe, the wedding garment. And unless we have that wedding garment put on us, we are not entering the marriage supper for them. We will be cast out. We will study these two parables in connection with these prophecies and the Gospels. Okay, the Savior's promise is given in condition, on a condition. So there must be consent. And as the consent of willingly yielding, voluntarily, and then uh, spontaneously. That's the essence of the true religion of Christ. Uh, as defined and still guaranteed uh, right now by the U.S. Constitution, the First Amendment to the Bill of Rights. See, so here something happens. No wonder when I read this in the book of Revelation that that white garment is the righteousness 
usually would say the righteousness of Christ. But when you will read it in Revelation, it's called the righteousness of the saints. No wonder they become one. In the sacred matrimony, we're always looking at earthly things, but the spiritual meaning of the combination of they two shall be one, one flesh, is humanity and divinity blended into one. And who takes the name of what? It's the bride who takes the name of the husband. Name means authority, character, power. So all true obedience comes from the heart. It was hard work with Christ. And if we consent, if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and our aims. He will so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will so that when all that has taken place when obeying him we shall be but carrying out our own impulses oh how I love that how those impulsive compulsive um, you know <laughs> the fleshly kind will be transformed into the compulsion and impulses of divinity which is pure. The will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service. And so that when we know God, do you, do I? When we know God as it is our privilege to know him, what will happen? That's the evidence. Our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, through prayer and study of God's word, sin, something will happen to sin that will indicate that Christ, the Savior from sin, is residing within. What happens to the individual, to the mind? Something happens. Sin will become hateful. Now you think about that. If sin is not yet hateful to you, there's a lot of work to do. And we're running out of time and space and real estate, as they would say. Sin will become hateful. It will no longer be alluring, attractive, exciting, exotic, hypnotic, mesmerizing. That's how it's become so attractive. It is in the world. It is of the world. It's of the things of this world. And what does John say? Those things of the world will pass away and will bring us with them. So to pray in Christ's name means much. What does it mean now? So that we are educated now on how to handle God's word and his name. It means that we are to accept his character, not mine, not yours, not anyone. His character, we will manifest his spirit. And we will work his works. So that by so doing, he will so identify himself with our own thoughts, our own aims, and so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will. So that in so doing, by that process, when obeying him in that spirit, in that attitude, in that plane, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. You know, when that happens, the image of Christ is going to be reproduced in us. 
In Proverbs 4.23, we read this. It says, Keep thy heart with all diligence. Why? For out of it are the issues of life. 2 Corinthians 10.3-5, Paul writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we're still mortal. We do not war against the flesh. And that's what's happening in the world today. Among tribes, among kingdoms, among nations, among cities, among uh, fellow believers, in our this war going on against the flesh. Why? Because verse 4, Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty. Mighty in what? Through God. In doing what? In pulling down of the strongholds, the casting down of imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and brings into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. So, this diligent heart-keeping. Huh, I like this diligent heart-keeping because it reminds me of the diligent spiritual housekeeping. I'd like to walk through a hospital that doesn't have a good housekeeping force. Boy, that's not a hospital. How much more our hearts? When you say Jesus will come and abide in our heart, Jesus doesn't dwell in soiled hearts, impure hearts. That must be cleansed, and it has to be cleansed. And it needs diligence. Diligent heart-keeping is essential to a healthy growth in grace. I was studying the topic of grace. You better study it. We will do this together. You will find a lot of things that we've been... The ideas that we had about grace is the exactly opposite of what the Bible is teaching. And yet it is very popular. Satan has stolen a march against God's own people in this world. Scary. It is essential to healthy growth in grace because the, the heart in its natural state, and we read this in Romans, that the carnal of the flesh and the mind and heart is actually a habitation. It's either God who is inhabiting it or it is somebody else. But that heart in its natural state is a habitation of unholy thoughts and sinful passions. You agree? Yes. When brought into subjection to Christ, it must be cleansed by the Holy Spirit from all defilement. Remember, we went through John 14 and John 16. He will prove the convict man of sin and expel. We'll be covering that soon. This cannot be done without the consent of the individual. There you go again. So consent, willing consent, is front and center and substance and key to the success of our victory against Satan, sin, and the flesh. When the soul has been cleansed, doesn't stop there. Now let me ask you, when you clean your homes or do spring cleaning, you discover a lot of junk out there. Some of that may even be an open package as you just forgot you went on the shopping place spree and you dumped it there, never got there till springtime. What a waste. But in the home, we do that weekly, twice a week. When, when you clean the home, do you leave it there and say it's done? You don't. You keep on cleaning it. 
So when the soul has been cleansed, it is the duty of every Christian to keep it undefiled. Because many seem to think that the religion of Christ does not call for the abandonment of daily sins, the breaking loose from habits which have held our soul in bondage for all these years. They renounce some which condemned by their conscience, but they fail to represent Christ in their daily life. They do not bring Christ-likeness into their homes. They do not show a thoughtful care of their choice of words. Ha! <laughs> so many pains, so many sorrows, so many, uh, you know, destroyed homes and relationships because of the carelessness of the words. Too often, this fretful, impatient words are spoken, the words which steer the most and the worst passions of that human heart, such ones need the abiding presence of Christ in the soul. That is the place in which Christ dwells, by the way, in our soul. And only in the strength, in his strength, can we keep guard over our words and our actions. It is the work of heart-keeping. May I repeat that, friends? It's spiritual housekeeping that we must be instant in prayer, unwearied, in petitioning the throne of grace for assistance. That's the assisting, enabling, empowering, amazing God in Christ. That's the assistance that we need for those who take the name of Christian. How many of us do out there? All of us, practically. Christian nation. Those who take the name of Christian should come to God in earnestness and humility, pleading for help, just like Jacob the precursor of Israel, the precursor of the tribe of God and the chosen people. He was pleading for help, not in a, you know, in a boasting, presumptuous, lazy, or vain repetitions. No, sir, no, certainly not. The Savior has told us to pray without ceasing. The Christian cannot always be in a position of prayer, either kneeling or with their heads bowed and their eyes closed. But his thoughts and his desires can always be upward. Our self-confidence would vanish if we only talked less and prayed more. Sounds good? Yes, it is true. You see, we talked about God and our consent. We talked about Christ a little bit and our consent. What about the Holy Spirit and our consent? Well, in John 16, 8 and 9, it's a review. The office of the Holy Spirit is distinctly specified in the words of Christ. When he said, when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts of sin. If the sinner responds, see that call that we read in the book of Revelation, the end, the Spirit and the bride say, come. If he responds to the quickening influence of the Holy Spirit, he will be brought, here's the key word, to repentance. So if there's no repentance in our Christian walk, we have a very serious problem. 
Either we're not listening to the work of the Holy Spirit or we're turning Him away. Worse, you've heard it going around today that there's no more Holy Spirit. I am scared to death with that. You need to pray. Because if you keep on repeating that, that terrible, terrible lie, you will end up committing the unpardonable sin. He will be brought to repentance and then be aroused to the importance of obeying the divine requirements. And I will say, not just the law, but the law that is magnified, the spiritual meaning. And I, let's go back to the example of, uh, you had a wonderful manifestation of the experience uh, of the conversion, uh, the change of person of, of uh, Jacob to Israel. But we also have the example in the New Testament of Paul. You know, Paul was not always the Paul that we talk about. He was a terrible person. He was sold the persecutor of God's people. Uh, but that, that transformation took place. There was this magnificent change from Saul, the persecuting Pharisee, to Paul, the humble apostle, to the Gentiles. You see, as Paul yielded, there you go, keyword now we're looking at. He yielded himself fully to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. What did he see? He saw the mistakes of his life. And he recognized the far-reaching claims of the law of God. You better read Romans chapter 5 and 6, the rest of that. He who had been a proud Pharisee, confident that he was justified by his good works, now bowed before God with the humility and simplicity of a little child. He was confessing his own unworthiness and he was pleading the merits of a crucified and a risen Savior because, you know why, just like Jacob in the great crisis of his life, Saul actually, and he didn't immediately recognize this, but he was pointed out later. Saul longed to come actually into full harmony and communion with the Father and the Son. And in the intensity of his desire for pardon and acceptance, he offered up fervent supplication to the throne of grace, not yet to the throne of glory. That comes when Christ comes. To the now kingdom is the throne of grace. The prayers of that penitent Pharisee was not in vain. The inmost thoughts and emotions of his heart were transformed by divine grace. That's what grace does. And his nobler faculties were brought into harmony. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Into harmony with the eternal purposes of God. Christ and his righteousness became to soul more than the whole world. Now I understand what he meant by, you know, I count everything dung, but for the knowledge of God. The conversion of soul is a striking evidence of the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit to convict men of sin. When you say that there's no more Holy Spirit, who's going to convict you of sin? You're lost, my friend. If you have still time, and I will plead with all those, including those whom I know, at this time, if you have been turned back, it's time too. You're getting too far out there. Thank God you're still alive. What if the COVID took you? Where would you be now? I'm not accusing. 
I'm not denouncing. My voice is trembling when I say this. Because I fear for the loss of souls. You should have concern for your own souls before you can have concern for the souls of others. Because I remember this. There was an honest man who placed a plate at the back, uh, at the back of his car. And I was following him. And I remember this. We were still in Philadelphia. It stuck with me like glue. Because it says there in his plate number, don't follow me, I am lost. I still remember that to this very moment. I don't want you to follow me if I'm following the wrong things. But certainly we have a responsibility to teach people to follow the Word of God. Why study the Word of God? How to study the Word of God? And I am attempting to do that by God's grace. Now what about Satan and our consent? Can't leave him out. It's very much part of this. Oh, Satan cannot enter the mind without our consent. Oh, I got this from Adventist home, uh, 402, because I've heard people say, you know, I was sleeping. And the demons and the evil spirits came into my mind. I didn't know. They got into me. They controlled me. And so I killed my mother, my father, my brothers, and my sisters. You heard that? No. That never happened. He cannot control until we consent. We should present before the people the fact that God has provided that we shall not be tempted above that which we are able, but with that same temptation, he will make a way of escape. That's why I'm presenting that to you today. If we live wholly for God, we shall not allow the mind to indulge in selfish imaginings. You know, we prepare the ground. We open the door, and we should understand the science uh, that is in function here. If there is any way by which Satan can gain access to the mind, he will sow his tares and cause them to grow until they will yield an abundant harvest. In no case can Satan obtain dominion over the thoughts and the words and actions unless we voluntarily open the door and invite him to enter. He will then come in, and by catching away the good sown seed in the heart, he will make of none effect the truths of God. With that, we'd like to continue that in our next series. But I want you to remember this, friends. This whole issue about our winning consent in relation to the worship of God has everything to do with our true religious freedom. Because we can talk this and be so legally uh, proficient and efficient in the way we explain it in defense of protecting religious liberty. But if we have not gained the liberty over our secret sins, we're still in bondage to Him. May God help us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we still have time to understand the higher things of God. We're so good in the mysteries of this world. We watch movies, we read these spy stories and all that, and this technology has made things even worse. But today, God is calling us. There's an invitation being issued right now. It's the last one, by the way. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and the Bride, that's a true church of God, true people of God, are saying, come. Anyone who is thirsty, come. Anyone who will will, to will their will, come. And those who accept this message also have to issue this invitation. Because soon this invitation 
will no longer be issued. Pray that before it ends, we shall have accepted that and entered by faith with Christ, that where the Lamb goeth, we follow Him. He is right now there, uh, invisible to human eyes, but seen by the eye of faith and a clear conscience. We want that, Lord. We desperately need it, and we ask for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.